Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. As we sit here and we track the spread of the coronavirus, there is a realization that even if developed nations are cracking down on trade, the world is still getting more global, at least when it comes to people and viruses moving around. And then there is a growing concern that we are ill-equipped to handle another pandemic. Joining us now is Robert Langreth, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News, who wrote an incredibly uh, interesting and frightening, frankly, story for Bloomberg Businessweek about a potential uh, pandemic. I just want to start with this quote from the World Health Organization. Epidemics in the 21st century are spreading faster and farther than ever. Outbreaks that were previously localized can now become global very rapidly. Robert, why is that? Well, that's absolutely true. We just have a world with much more populations, much more interconnected than ever before. And even, uh, you may remember one of the uh, first scary emerging viruses, SARS, one of the last ones to come out of China that killed, killed about 800 people in 2003. Uh, and now, uh, this coronavirus is the next emerging virus to come out of China, and the difference is it's spreading you know, much faster because even since 2003, there are just so many more uh, discount plane flights and so many more you know, high-speed trains, so people just from all over China and Southeast Asia travel so much more than they used to. So a virus that emerges you know, somewhere out in the world just gets all around the world, you know, much more quickly than it than it used to. And it probably is the case that, you know, years and decades ago, we had a lot of, you know, emerging viruses that hit some obscure city out, out in the developing world somewhere and just didn't spread that far and kind of died out before we even kind of heard of it. Now, these things like spread everywhere around the world. Robert, just, you know, given, I know we're early days of this coronavirus, but kind of what's the um, thought out there in the health community about the China's response uh, to this coronavirus? Well, the problem is, I mean, obviously China is doing a very aggressive you know, response now and has basically locked down a whole city, a whole you know, province of 60 million people, uh, uh, and, you know, sort of an unprecedented quarantine there. The problem is that in the kind of key early weeks of, of the virus spreading, you know, it didn't, it didn't really communicate much uh, what was going on, you know, internally, and, and the big response uh, didn't begin until like several weeks into it, because you know, apparently because, you know, local officials are waiting for the top-level communist parties for what to do and what they could say, and so that basically allowed it to spread, you know, uh, before people really knew what a big deal what it was for, you know, two or three weeks before like the heavy, heavy response, and that's the sort of, that's sort of the key period, and sort of you're you going to need to slow these things down right away or nip them in the bud, and when that doesn't happen, that allows them to escape. The headline of the uh, of the piece that you wrote for the magazine, Man versus Microbe, we're not ready for the next global virus outbreak, and I'm wondering whether we can glean any insights from the spread of the coronavirus and extrapolate out, why is this the case? Why are we unprepared? Well, one of the problems that happens is that, you know, 
we have lots of scientific smarts, and there has been real progress in you know, you know better better testing and drug development, uh, and you know new gene sequencing technologies, so we know exactly what's in this coronavirus very quickly. But kind of what's missing really is a long-term focus. You know, every time, you know, you know they call it the cycle of panic and neglect. You know, every time there's a new outbreak, there's global panic, there's momentary resolve, and then kind of that a few years later we kind of forget about it, it fades away, and that kind of gives away to kind of inaction. And the problem is we're only uh, as as prepared as as our weakest link. So it doesn't matter if the CDC does a great job inside the United States if we haven't provided support to developing countries so they have some first responders that can identify emerging outbreaks right away. What does it mean to be prepared? Is it just a, the in terms of the sanitary equipment and testing uh, kits? I mean, how can you be prepared for something if you don't even know what the virus is? Well, there's like two different things here. You know, one one is that well, I'll give you an example: of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa uh, in 2014 or so. Now that killed more than 11,000 people. But it's not that Ebola was an unknown virus. What happened there was it took literally the thing was brewing in Guinea for three full months and expanding uh, before the wider world knew, uh, and that allowed it a chance to reach cities. So if there had been some, you know, first responders, some some better, little bit of better infrastructure there, not a lot, but just enough to recognize it and do tests right away, we could have nipped that in the bud, and that wouldn't have killed anywhere near, near as many people. So that's the one thing. Another thing is that, you know, that's a real problem, and people think that one of the places where this current coronavirus originated or spread to people is in uh, – one of these uh, these food markets in, in China and Southeast Asia called wet markets. That's where live animals and freshly slaughtered unwrapped meat kind of commingle with lots of shoppers. And, the, and, the, and they have live animals there in cages, often stacked on top of each other, different types of live animals. So they're very unsanitary. They team with germs. They're these perfect breeding grounds for deadly pathogens. And a lot of the health experts we talked to said these really need to be shut down. They're just not safe, not in, not in the new interconnected world, and it just provides too much opportunity for an emerging virus to kind of mix around the different animals and then spread on to people. And that's what we think probably happened with this virus from Wuhan. So, Robert, one of the, the areas of focus has been on kind of the, the healthcare industry, big pharma, the ability to come up with maybe antidotes or just vaccines or something like that for something that pops up. Is that a fair criticism? Do you think big pharma should respond better or more uh, quickly? Well, the problem is, you know, for an emerging virus, they're, they're kind of, you know, it's not, it's not a regular market. There isn't a regular market for, you know, disease that doesn't exist yet or a vaccine like this where we just, you know, don't know what the market could be. We don't know what this is going to be doing a year from now, whether it's going to disappear entirely, whether it's still going to be here with us, but it's contained in China, or whether it's going to be, something, you know, that's endemic in the population and we need to like vac- vaccinate like influenza. So that means it's just kind of not a regular market for drug companies to go after. And, and people, you know, top thinkers like Bill Gates says we need to treat this possibility of pandemics, you know, more likely prepare for a war kind of as a national security threat. And we don't really do that. We need yeah. to Robert, just real quickly here, uh, I'm wondering about the Chinese doctor who uh, initially was sanctioned for warning about the deadly Wuhan coronavirus outbreak. Uh, that was back in December, and there is a concern that perhaps this was spreading for a lot longer within China, and there was a political incentive not to really disclose it because of the ongoing trade negotiations. Have you heard any discussion to that effect, or is that just a conspiracy theory and rumor at this point? Well, I, I don't know about the link to the trade negotiations in particular. I, 
I don't know that, but certainly there is a concern that for whatever reason the the, the Chinese the provincial, provincial officials were trying to you know keep talk about this down, you know, not not say a lot about this. You know, they didn't. They you know, it certainly seems like I think that you know they didn't announce there was definite human to human transmission until just one or two or a few days before they kind of locked down the whole city. And it certainly seems like looking back at it, there's pretty clear evidence, and they should have known well before that there was human to human transmission. So so certainly there does appear to be been an effort to underplay this or at least minimize this uh, uh, for you know several weeks. And now it's just not clear was that because the officials of the, the, the province were timid and they kind of wait for yep. Beijing to tell them what to do. It's really not clear what was going on there. The information coming out of China now is so kind of murky and, right. and confusing and hard to know, you know, what's true and, you know, what's not true. Uh, yet even with the death of this yep. doctor, you know, right. first we heard he was dead, then they started to retract yeah. <laughs> it and they're trying <laughs> okay. to save his Hey, Rob, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for that. Robert Langreth, healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News uh, with this uh, latest, um, it's actually a Bloomberg Business Week uh, cover story man versus microbe very timely look at uh, pathogens and, and, and disease in the in case of the coronavirus this is bloomberg time to check in with bloomberg opinion we're joined by uh, opinion columnist alisa martinuzzi uh, she covers all things finance for bloomberg opinion based in london alisa thanks so much for joining us boy some more news at credit suisse tijin tim ousted as ceo what happened well, it's been um, a, a long time coming, and that you've had a you know a bank that has been um, tarred by a, a series of embarrassing leaks over the last uh, four or five months or so, um, starting with the um, revelation that one of their former employees, who had just jumped ship to um, to rival UBS, had been tailed by a contractor for the bank, and that that triggered a, a sequence of events. There was an internal probe that found that the CEO wasn't aware that it was actually the COO who had you know orchestrated this. Um, and and then subsequently another another incidents of of corporate um, um, surveillance of one of the employees, and you know a, a, and you know continuing um, to be um, followed by news about you know internal warfare etc cetera, etc, cetera. and and this came to a head really in the last week where um, it appeared you know it was reported that the chairman was about to oust um, the CEO, investors weighed in backing the CEO, and it's you know today is the um, the outcome of that boardroom battle sees. Tijan Tiam leave to be succeeded by the first uh, Swiss-born uh, CEO in almost 20 years atop the Swiss farm. Initially, shares of Credit Suisse uh, traded in Switzerland down. Uh, they still are down, but much less than they were initially, now down just four-tenths of a percent. Do we have any sense of the new path forward? Was this an issue with Tijan Tiam's strategy or a culture clash or perhaps something personal? Well, I think, you know, you, you've had a strategy that he put in place and this, this you know, restructuring, which basically saw the bank shrink and, and, and shift more of the business towards wealth management and away from um, investment banking and volatile trading. That hasn't really yet delivered as much of, of the fruits as Tijan would have liked by now. That was starting to come through. And I think we'll see some strong um, numbers on the fourth quarter when they report next week. Um, so you had a, you know, some questions over strategy just because it's taken so long um, for that to translate into better shareholder returns. Um, on the other hand, yes, you've had this, you know, huge damage to the bank's franchise and reputation. Um, 
over what appears to be, you know, quite a, a bitter internal um, internal warfare, um, and 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 certainly it's put a spotlight on on the culture, but also on the governance of the bank. Um, you know, the CEO claiming not to know about what his COO was up to, and the board equally being um, in the dark about what its leadership was up to. It all points to you know certain concerns of of controls and governance right across the farm. What's interesting to me, Elisa, about this whole saga was that some. Just recently, in the last several days, some big shareholders of Credit Suisse came out in support of the uh, ousted CEO, TM, yet the board still moved to uh, oust him from the company. What's the situation there? Well, of course, you know, these were three large shareholders, but they're not the only shareholders. Uh, you know, uh, Bloomberg has is reporting that other investors, including the Qataris, were, were backing the chairman on this. Um, I think... Um, you see, you have to you have to bear in mind that what we're seeing is not you know necessarily everything that's going on behind the scenes, um, but I think what's what's significant is really that from what I'm picking up, from what I'm reading, and and from what I'm, what we're hearing is that this doesn't necessarily um, bring closure to this chapter. There's still an investigation ongoing by the uh, local regulator into into governance and controls, and you have a CEO now who will take over from Tijan Tm. Um, who, who's, you know, whose remit is a little bit unclear because in a year's time, the chairman will definitely go. He's confirmed that he's only going to serve out maximum another year. Um, and that leads to potential questions as to whether this is really a permanent CEO succession or whether it's you know, an interim step towards you know, further strategic reviews further down the line and perhaps a new management. Elisa, I'm just wondering, what do you think that Credit Suisse needs to do in order to bolster their profitability? Well, I think we'll we'll learn a little bit more, um, you know, this coming um, these coming earnings next week in terms of how how successful that restructuring has been. I think there's been a very strong shift towards um, lending, and particularly in the wealth management business, and particularly in Asia. And of course, we've we've seen. Um, you know what's been happening in Hong Kong and the repercussions in the economy from from the coronavirus, both you know in China and Hong Kong. There are some questions as to whether this you know very excessive growth in in Asia, driven really by top line um, targets, is is going to um, you know is going to lead to, to potential more difficulty in delivering those shareholder returns. Elisa Martinuzzi, thank you so much for being with us. Elisa Martinuzzi is a columnist covering finance for Bloomberg Opinion. Joining us from London, you can read our columns, Bloomberg.com slash opinion or OPIN go on the Bloomberg. Interesting to see the market response to the Credit Suisse News, TGN TM, after joining the bank as chief executive officer in 2015, departing, being pushed out, ousted uh, after a battle in the boardroom. What could you do if your data was working for you? and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. 
We got the latest U.S. jobs report out this morning. It was a blowout number, 225,000 jobs added. That was compared to estimates of uh, economists surveyed by Bloomberg of 165,000. The market's response, negative. It took it as bad news. Joining us now to talk about the actual underlying market and why there could be such a negative response, Tom Gimbel. He is chief executive officer of global staffing company LaSalle Network. Tom, can you give us a sense, uh, was there anything in this report that was anything other than positive? Well, I think people are always looking for there to be a bigger increase in wages. They're always looking to have a jump in participation rate. Um, what I always call the chicken little effect, that, that the better it gets, the more people are waiting for the, the sky to fall. And so there's, the, there's that situation. But, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the market and how they're seeing it, sometimes it is just serendipitous that the, the market goes down based on whatever the number is. Tom, I know that you guys talk to a lot of uh, companies out there. Are you finding, are the companies out there finding that it's really hard to find talent and keep talent? It is extremely hard to find talent. When you're looking at a 3.5% uh, unemployment rate, it would take up a tenth of a point to 3.6%. Um, it's really hard to find people. So what companies are doing is they're hiring a lot more recent college graduates. They are transitioning people. They're spending a lot more money on training and development is one of the leading areas that companies are investing in. And then also um, you're getting people to move, but the the – active people, even executives leaving one job for another, there's a little bit of hesitancy because they don't want to be the low man on the totem pole if the uh, bottom does fall out. This is interesting because we're hearing that the job gains are coming at the lower end of the totem pole when it comes to wages and skills uh, in the jobs market. So if that's the case, and that's where we're seeing the additional jobs and the wage increases, why aren't we seeing them more at the top where skills are, are sort of more necessary? The people don't exist, right? So, so the, 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 the factory, if you will, of producing people is always going to be in college graduates and unskilled uh, labor, if you will, call centers and customer service, uh, people doing uh, hospitality and service jobs. So when you have that, that's where it's going to be. They're, they're, you don't just find a surplus at 3.5% okay. unemployment of $150,000 a year people. Which is the question, again, about capital expenditure, about why we're not seeing companies spend more on training people and getting up the skills uh, to fill these jobs if there just aren't the people. Why aren't we seeing more of that? Well, I think we are. It takes time. So, you know, every Fortune 500 company is different. Small to medium-sized companies have always been the engine for uh, for growth in this country. And so, but they're not going to have full, huge um, training and development. When you get to Fortune 500 companies to implement something like that at the level of jobs that it needs to be, there, there just isn't a – if you look at where the skills gap exists, the majority of jobs that people, that companies need on the medium to bigger-sized companies – are where there aren't people. You can't train somebody who's been a construction worker to be a data scientist. You can't take a salesperson and turn them into an accountant. So the, the aspect of training is very different for um, training and acclimating them for a job going up on a vertical level versus horizontal movement into a totally different category. And if someone's brain isn't programmed to be an engineer, you can't turn them into one. Tom, are you seeing any regional you know, differences in, across the U.S. in terms of job demand, job creation? Is it still the, you know, the Sun Belt is kind of the growth area, for example? No, I'm seeing a lot more of the coasts bringing in higher volume jobs uh, into the Midwest. 
so what we're seeing is is that the the cost of living and the cost of of salaries on both coasts have gotten so high and for for non-technology driven jobs non-developer non-engineers a lot of those jobs can be done from the midwest so you're starting to see uh kind of not a rebirth, but for lack of a better phrase, in Chicago, in St. Louis. I think it'll end up going into Detroit, um, and you're seeing more of that. Dallas continues to be a big, a big hub of companies, and then obviously the Austin of the the second Silicon Valley esque type of of environment. But you're going to see a lot more in the Midwest, and continue to see that flourish. Is that at ex- at the expense of the uh, the workforce in the big cities on the coasts? No, because the companies that are there still have huge hubs, whether it's San Francisco with with LinkedIn and Oracle and what exi- and Apple, obviously, and Facebook and, and what's there. They have so many uh, huge companies out there. And on the East Coast with the financial services of Fidelity and Goldman and, and what have you in financial services, that those are still going to be there. But you know, if you look at, uh, it's not necessarily the Midwest, but Salt Lake City is a huge hotbed for hiring right now, uh, has been for probably the last half decade. And Goldman Sachs has a huge office yep. in uh, in in uh, Salt Lake City. Tom Gimbel, thank you so much for joining us. Tom is a founder and CEO of LaSalle a Network, based in Chicago, helping us break down the jobs numbers today. Two hundred twenty-five thousand uh, jobs added uh, in the latest month. Wages uh, up about three point one percent. So, and uh, it just some continued strength in the job sector, driving continued strength in the U.S. consumer, driving continued strength uh, in the U.S. economy. That has been the story that continues uh, to be the story in the U.S. Looking at the markets here, the S&P down six, Dow down. 173 uh, Nasdaq uh, down six here to end the week uh, looking at the Treasury market up 15 30 seconds pushing a 10-year yield uh, down to 1.58 percent well we're about two-thirds of the way through earnings season and we heard a whole host of CEOs from a whole host of industries talking about the impact of the coronavirus on their businesses and none more so than the, the global travel business. Uh, to get a sense of what's going on with the U.S. airlines, we welcome uh, Mary Schlangenstein. She's a U.S. airlines reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from our Dallas bureau. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. I'm, I'm, we want to get to that JetBlue story. They're launching a new low-cost airline. But first, I just want to get your thoughts on kind of what you're seeing right here, right now, as it relates to the U.S. airlines and maybe how they're being impacted by the coronavirus. Well, the U.S. carriers um, that fly to China have pretty much suspended their flights to mainland China. Um, they've also suspended or are suspending Hong Kong routes, uh, but on a little bit different time frame. For example, American Airlines um, is only suspending DFW to Hong Kong through February 20th, and um, United is suspending Hong Kong also to February 20th. So there, that's a little bit shorter suspension of flights than to mainland China. Um, They aren't really talking yet about monetary damages or monetary losses related to these suspensions of flights. Mary, uh, so we'll keep watching to see whether there's any kind of financial impact, but interesting to see uh, that they are suspending some of these flights. In the meantime, you wrote a story that got our attention because it seems like a time of consolidation in the airline industry, and yet the founder of JetBlue is trying to launch a new airline. Uh, It's on track to start flying this year, and it will focus on routes that primarily don't have anyone currently operating in them. Can you explain what this is? 
Sure. Um, uh, David Nealman, who founded JetBlue and has founded several other airlines, including Azul in um, Brazil, um, has decided he wants to get back into the uh, U.S. aviation market. And so he's founding um, an airline called Breeze Airways. And what Nealman says he's done is he's been able to go through, uh, look at routes and pull out 500 potential city pairs. So that's, you know, flying from city A to city B that don't have any nonstop competition. And those are the routes that he wants to focus on with this new airline. And he's planning to operate on mid-sized cities that maybe lost nonstop service as larger airlines combined and then started to focus on building up their already established hubs. Mary, I mean, I, I'm always fascinated when I see people getting into the airline business. It seems like such a brutally tough business with competition and the unions and jet fuel and all those type, types of things. It's a tough, tough business. What's his cost advantage going to be to you know go up against some of these bigger players? Well, Newman claims that you know he's going to be uh, excuse me get a big cost advantage from the size of the aircraft that he's going to fly. He's small, flying smaller planes, and also the fact that he's not going to fly um, every day of the week to every location. And there may even be times of the year where he doesn't fly. He's going to fly only on peak days periods of peak demand. Um, that's a very similar model to what Allegiant Airline flies, and they've been very successful with it. How much room is there for another airline? Um, you know, there's probably room for another airline. Um, it's hard to, to tell from this you know, this date, this point in time, how successful Nealman will be. He's certainly been successful in the past with um, WestJet in Canada and then JetBlue. He founded JetBlue here in the United States. So he's been able to, to work some magic in the past, and we'll have to see if he's able to do that again. It's interesting. You know, I'll, I certainly am aware that a lot of mid-sized cities have lost a lot of uh, capacity here. But I often think that it's because the Uniteds of the worlds or the Deltas of the worlds have said it's just not economical to fly there given the load factors and whatnot. So is it really all about the fact that he's going to fly different planes, maybe less union uh, workforce? Is that kind of his business model? Yeah, he's probably initially not going to have any unions working at the airline uh, as they get started, uh, which was the situation at JetBlue for quite some time. But then he also is saying that he's going to have a lot of this stuff uh, linked to technology so that people will be able to do almost everything on an app, right? So maybe they won't have to have uh, people standing at counters in the in the airport or, you know, there'll be other ways that they can reduce the requirement for personnel. Um, so I think he's going to count on technology a lot. He's going to count on um, these new Airbus A220 aircraft that he's ordered. Um, they're, they're very fuel efficient. They're very popular new aircraft. He's also flying some used planes from um, his airline in Brazil, um, but he's saying he's going to be able to make uh, good use of those, and even if he only has 50 or 60 people on them, that they'll be able to be profitable. When I hear, Mary, fuel efficient, I think of a box with nothing else in it, and you're basically foisted into the corner and, and, and a little sardine <laughs> in the corner, because that seems to be where we're, where we're heading uh, in terms of economy travel. I'm wondering, is there any pushback by consumers at this point with respect to the comfort of the seats that they have, or is it entirely a cost basis? Um, you know, for the people whose primary concern is the cost of flying, um, you know, they uh, will buy the basic economy seats, which doesn't always translate to less leg room. It's just less 
you know, additional things that are included in the fare. Um, and people continue to fly on Spirit Air, which, you know, has very little leg room. Um, it just depends on what you value when you fly. And certainly if you value more leg room, that option is available for you on all the big carriers. You know, they have sections that have more leg room. Cost you more, but if that's what's important to you, then, you know, they seem to be having a lot of success with it. Mary Schlangenstein, uh, Schlangenstein, thank you so much for being with us. Mary Schlangenstein, U.S. Airlines reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from uh, Dallas. I have to say, I've flown Spirit. Yeah. And I will say, um, well, I mean, you, you have to pay for, for absolutely everything. Everything. Everything's right? a la carte now. Everything's, everything's a la carte. And you have to wonder whether at a certain point it all adds up to the same price. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm just looking at this airline stocks over the trailing 12 months, decidedly mixed again. United down 10%, America down 21%, Delta up 17%. I, it's just a brutal business. There's kind of a double whammy, though, here going on. Because on one hand, you have reduced travel because of the spread of the coronavirus. On the other hand, you have oil prices coming down. Yes. Yep. And that cap is actually a huge uh, tailwind to the airlines because this is one of their biggest expenses. So interesting to see how both of this will will affect the industry at a time when, in general, travel is getting hit pretty hard. Meanwhile, in markets, we're looking at uh, losses, although really clawing back from earlier declines. We're seeing the NASDAQ down less than two-tenths of a percent now, the S&P down three-tenths of a percent, uh, 33.36 on the S&P, and we're looking at the NASDAQ, 95.57. Interesting to see how people are interpreting the signs of whether the Fed will cut or not after they released this uh, report saying they're worried about the coronavirus. People now saying, oh, maybe they'll just cut rates a couple times. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, fuel as it relates to the airlines. Looking at WTI crude here, $50.67 barrel here. We broke uh, below 50 a couple of days ago. So oil down on lower global uh, demand expectations. Yeah, and just uh, a few weeks ago, it was trading uh, above $63 a barrel at the beginning of the year. So down $13 so far this year. I'm Lisa Abramowitz with Paul Sweeney. This is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.